Well, it is a privilege to be with you this this morning. I have to tell you about your pastor. He is a mover and shaker. That man gets things done. I, I, I jokingly have said behind his back that he can organize chaos. <laughs> Only person I know who can do that besides him is my wife. So, so he's in good company. And so to Sister Shipman, Bakita, good to see you, dear, and your children. It's good to be here with you all and to share the word of God with you. By the way, brother, when Brother Amos is preaching next month, Pastor Shipman will be preaching in my pulpit at, 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 uh, in Chattanooga. So thank you for sharing them with us. And uh, we promise to return him um, uh, in good shape, in good condition. We, we will take good care of him, we promise. I don't want to get you upset with me. For one thing, we're family. And so I'm privileged to be here with my family, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we thank you for making us feel welcome as your family in Chattanooga, in Christ. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I will not be able to deal with these passages, these verses, all of them, uh, as deeply as I would like. Um, I, I found out recently that the older you get, the longer you preach. So my sermons are longer than your pastors. Um, I'm over 50, what can I tell you? So, but I, I, I respect the angel of this house, and so I'm going to try my best to would come it down, bring it down, and be a little bit more concise uh, with you this morning. So, Titus chapter two, verses eleven through fourteen. Would you stand for the reading of the word of the Lord? Verse eleven: For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Robbie Zacharias is one of my favorite Christian defenders of the faith. He's an apologist, and he's written a new book called Jesus Among Secular Gods. And in this book, he, he talks about a, a conversation that he was having with a Palestinian Christian while in a coffee shop in Jerusalem. And the Palestinian Christian is telling him of a, of a conversation he had witnessed in another coffee shop. It was between a Muslim sheik and, a, and Brother Andrew, who's a Christian missionary worker. And the Muslim sheik had just ordered the assassination of eight Israelis because the, because the Jewish government had put to death for Palestinians that they had accused of war crime. And so the brother Andrew looks at the Muslim sheik and says, who made you judge and jury? And the sheik looks at him and says, I am not the judge and jury. I am merely the instrument of God's justice. And so brother Andrew paused. This is a true story now. Brother Andrew paused. And then looked at him and said, but what place is there then for forgiveness? 
And the Muslim sheep, without batting an eye, looked at him in the eye and said, Forgiveness is for those who deserve it. Ravi says, Grace is real and needed. If forgiveness is for those who deserve it, then none of us can get it. Grace is so important. Grace brings healing between people and even possibly nations. Grace. Grace, the grace of God in Jesus Christ in particular, let's be clear, brings healing in our lives and transformation. But first, and, 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 and those who are affected by this grace then become God's agents of grace to the surrounding culture. And if you haven't been watching the news, America needs grace today. But we first need to allow grace to do its work within us, and not just a work, but a continual work within us. So if you're, if you're thinking about football, let's talk about training camp. It's time to enter grace training camp. Now, we've got to have a working definition of grace, right, of the grace of God. So a working definition, which you probably are all very familiar with. I know your pastor. I know he's told you this, so forgive me. We're talking about God's unearned and undeserved favor and kindness through faith in Jesus alone, given to those who deserve judgment. By the grace of God, we mean God's unearned, undeserved favor, in kindness, given to, through Jesus, given to those who deserve the very opposite of that, which, by the way, would be justice or judgment. Grace is what changes us. Grace is what produces obedient living to Jesus. And we've messed it up quite a bit. In two ways, I can't go into details, but I'll just give you the, the ideas. Two different ways the church historically in the beginning and even now today have messed up grace. We have things called legalism, which is an abuse of the law. And we have something called antinomianism, which is an abuse of grace. Both those views are filtered throughout the evangelical church today. We, put, we, we believe the law can save us by keeping rules, and we believe grace won't really change us, especially among Reformed people, because we believe in total depravity. And so we know that we're still messed up. But in that camp is an antinomian spirit that slept in, and what happens is we don't believe we'll change at all. And so we wallow in our sin and justify it even by saying, I'm totally depraved. Pray for me, brother. I can't go into details, but just, just toss it out there and think about it. But Paul gives us, he's neither a legalist nor antinomian. He, he, he loves grace and respects the law. So he gives us a more balanced picture of what grace can do in this wonderful passage in Titus chapter 2. My focus will be mostly on verses 11 and 12. I will touch on the others. 
First of all, notice that he says grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. He's talking about the appearing of Christ. When Jesus shows up, as John tells us, the law, for John chapter 1, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus shows up, he brings the revelation. Grace is already here. Don't get me wrong. Old Testament, you're still saved by grace through faith. As well as it's the same deal. But what happened was it got corrupted. And so when Jesus shows up, he embodies the grace and the truth of God and shows us oh so clearly what grace is. Now, grace does something, Paul says. First of all, continual exposure to grace transforms our lives in verse 12. This grace that has come, that has been revealed, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The word for training, grace does something. Notice this. The word for training means to, and continue, to, to continually instruct or discipline. It involves correction and the molding of character. It helps you form proper habits of behavior. It uses admonitions, warnings, and and correction, positive correction in in the form of counsel. It does all of it. See, grace, grace does something in our lives. It gives positive instruction, what you should do and believe. Negative instruction, what you should avoid doing and not believe. You see, grace has two sides. What we deny and what we affirm. What we put to death, but also what we live. Now, I know so often Christians want to only hear the positive side about grace and how grace, great God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and, 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 you, and, you know, and, and, and we want to hear that. And that's good. Amen. But grace has a negative side, too. And if you don't want to hear the negative side of grace, you've just cut off some of the power of grace in your life. Now, let's be honest. I will help somebody, hopefully. If you are someone who likes rules and you tend toward legalism, that's how you bent. You like rules and you tend toward that way. You need to hear some positive grace. Amen. Because the person who's a legalist, what happens is when they fail, and they will, they get destroyed and depressed. And they feel like, how can God love me if I, if, I, if I can't keep his rules? How could he love me? So the legalist has a real problem. So the legalist needs to hear that you are loved and accepted in spite of your failures. That's grace. If that's your bent, you need to to, to suck up the fact that God accepts you and will never turn away from you once he's accepted you. And there's nothing you can do about that. 
However, if you are someone who tends toward the abuse of grace and you're antinomian and you just, woo, he's just flowing, man. You know, you don't mind getting drunk on occasion. You know, you just, because this ain't my grace. And you just, you, you do, you do, you kind of on the edge, you know. you on the edge, you know. You, and son, you step over the edge, too. And, and, and you like living out there because you, cause you know you're being cool and hip because you're saved by grace. You need to hear some law. You need to hear what Paul says. You ought to walk worthy of the name of Christ. You ought to seek to glorify him in all that you do and say and think. You need to hear a little bit of that. But the truth of the matter is Paul gives us the balance. We don't want to live on the extremes. We want to live where he gives us balanced living here in this passage. Paul, that says no. That this grace comes to transform us. This grace, this beautiful grace, who I like to say Jesus is the grace of God. He has come not to leave us like we are. Not to put a burden upon us that we cannot carry either. Ah, But that grace that finds you as you are will not leave you as you are. So grace trains us. It trains us so that Christ's image might be formed in us so that we will not be what we used to be. How does it do that? Well, it tells us grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, to renounce certain things and pick up others. Now, grace gives us this ability to do that. Now, some of you may have the NIV translation. Anybody? NIV, it's okay, I love it. It's okay, Don't, I'm not attacking the NIV. The NIV simply says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. The ESV, which is what I'm reading from, is more literal. Both good translations is just a little bit more literal, and it gives, and it, gives it a more firmer voice. Renounce is firmer than just say no. I'm old enough to remember the Reagan administration. And if you are, you remember that Nancy Reagan ran a campaign against drugs called... Now, we all know, I worked in psychiatry, but more than that, I grew up in the hood. I grew up in West Philly. And I know it takes a lot more than saying no to get off drugs. I I thought the Reagan administration didn't take drug drug addiction very seriously, except to lock up addicts, of course. But the text says we are to renounce. That is deny, reject. When my daughter played my daughter, two of my daughters played basketball in Miami, and I never forget the coach had this play. He would yell, "Deny, deny!" That means don't let the ball in, don't even let them inbound the ball. I mean, he, he would, and they would, they would press, they would scramble, and they would just guard everybody at the same. It was amazing, but he would yell, "Deny!" It was, he wasn't saying just say no, <laughs> just don't let them in, guys. He would jump up and down with his veins popping out of his neck. Deny! That's what Paul's yelling. He's on the sidelines of the, Christ, of the, of, of the faith. One of the great cloud of witnesses that we see in Hebrews, he's yelling down at us going, Deny! You see, reject with all your strength, worldly passions, and ungodliness. 
doesn't mean that you'll never struggle with sin. But it does mean that you have a settled disposition against it. <laughs> one lady, lady went to church one Sunday, and she, her husband stayed home. I guess, um, I'm sorry, he, he, she stayed home. He went to church. That's a new thing. Um, he went to church, and he came back, and his wife says, well, what, what was the sermon about? <laughs> he says, uh, it was about sin. <laughs> his wife says, well, what, what did he say? He says, well, I think he was against it. <laughs> I think we wanted something a little bit more firm than that. Is, and here's the, strange, here's the strange thing about this, about this, word, re, about this word renounce. It's, it's in the original language, it's actually in the past tense. So what is he saying? The moment you came to Christ should have been when you renounced sin in your life. You see, we, we preach the gospel so weakly sometimes. When we preach the gospel to people, we should be telling them that when you that Christ wants to transform you. And the moment you accept him, you've turned away. Don't we call that repentance, Pastor Shipman? Isn't that uh, when you go in one way and you turn around and go? So that's renouncing. The moment we come to Christ, we've got to make that people understand. He, does not, he, he will accept you as you are, but like I said, he will not leave you as you are. The moment you come to Christ, you have said that I am done with that life of sin. I want to follow Jesus. I don't know where he's going to take me. You don't understand all the ins and outs, but all you know is one thing. You want Jesus. You want to be with him. The grace of God appears to show us the the magnificent Jesus, the majesty of Jesus, and gives us a heart to want him. Grace gives us the ability to renounce the old life and to say, I want to follow Jesus. Grace gives us power to do that. I love what Paul says in Ephesians 3.20. That wonderful benediction, that wonderful prayer at the end there. He says, now to him who is able to do, listen to what he says. Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He can do far more. Listen, did you catch that? Far more abundantly than you can pray. (laughs) Pray for. Now watch what he says after that. According to the power at work within us. Do you understand? That there's a, the resurrect, Ephesians 1 now, the resurrection power of Christ actually lives in you. And so Paul could say that, that he can do more than you can ask or think. What's tying you up? What's holding you back? God can do more than you ask or think according to the power he's put in you by his grace and spirit. One commentator put it strongly. This word renounce speaks of a decisive rupture with the past. Decisive. I'm done. Rupture with your past life. Doesn't mean, again, you won't struggle. But you have a new mind and a new desire to live in obedience to Christ. And that will grow 
It may be, you know, when you're, you know, you're a baby now, it's going to be a certain level. But that desire will grow, leading into what we call sanctification. That's what Paul's talking about here. He will mold and shape you into the image of Christ as that grace, which is so magnificent and so beautiful, teaches you to renounce the, the ungodliness that continues and worldly presence that continues to swell around you and whirl around you and even in you. So now listen. So we're renouncing what now? Ungodliness and worldly passions. Two things, two categories for what we are announcing. In other words, grace gives us the ability to break with our old lives. Our old lives are the ungodliness and worldly passions that Paul lists here. This is the negative side of our training. It's what grace demands that we leave behind. In all training, if you've been in any type of physical training in particular, Paul loved athletics, and he he uses those kinds of images from time to time. But all training has a negative side. There are unhealthy habits that you need to get rid of, especially in the area of diet. I know that's true for me. Too many Twinkies. Sometimes your form needs to be improved. I mean, my daughter plays, still plays basketball for Covenant College, and, and I'm watching her shoot her free throws the other night, and she was missing them. Something was off with her form. Training. So there's a negative side of training. you got to, some things need to be let go of so they can be corrected. Ungodliness, the Bible uh, means not devoted to God. That's what ungodliness is. It is a lack of devotion to God. In that culture, it was like saying I'm not religious to them. That, the word was used that way. Um, it's, it's like saying I don't believe in the God of the Bible, so I'm not devoted to that God of the Bible. So, so the, the, the ungodly person lives as if God does not exist or God is not in the God of the Bible is not important. By worldly passions, we are speaking of strong desires that come from our believing culture. Uh, worldly lusts could be just a more literal translation. Um, Paul lists some of those lusts, actually, in chapter, chapter 3. If you just turn over, if you have to, chapter 3, verse 3, Paul lists some of them. He says, for we ourselves will, and he's actually, I think, listing both, the ungodliness and worldly passions. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient. I think that's probably more of the um, ungodliness. Now, worldly passions led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. If you're someone who uh, likes lists, you can go to Galatians uh, 5, and you'll see once again this listing Paul gives us, 5, 19 to 22, a listing of the Worldly passions and ungodliness in people, or First Corinthians six, nine, and ten. If you like lists, and godliness, according to Romans one eighteen, invites the wrath of God. So Paul says we turn away from ungodliness and we turn somewhere else. Walt Kelly, y'all remember Walt Kelly? I think you, you might not remember his name, but you remember his comic strip, Pogo. Remember Pogo? Remember the famous, the most famous Pogo comic strip that I know of says this. We have met the enemy and he is us. He is us. Grace shows us up 
that what the problem is, is us. The problem here is internal. It's not them out there. It's us in here. It's the man in the mirror, Mike said, right? Michael Jackson, that is. He had no gospel to help him, but he, but he had the right perspective in one sense. The man in the mirror is the problem. The man in the mirror is full of ungodliness and worldly passions. The man in the mirror needs to change, and that's what grace does. It says you can change. It says you can follow Christ. The grace of God says, I will not leave you like this. And so, therefore, we turn away from ungodliness and worldly passions, and we turn now to the positive side, the positive side of our training. If we're saying, if we're renouncing ungodliness, we're not living in a vacuum. You can't just sit in front of your TV and say, I'm not going to be ungodly. I'm not going to be worldly in my past. No, something has got to take its place. And what Paul says, we are now to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The positive side. What we are to give up, but now, gloriously, how we are to live. So, what does he mean? One commentator makes it clear that uh, self-control is about how we relate to self. Upright is about how we relate to other people. And godly is about how we relate to God. And there's overlap between them. These attributes represent your whole self now, your whole life. By self-control, it speaks of being sober-minded, having a sound, unintoxicated mind that allows you to be in control of yourself. You're disciplined now. You were undisciplined before when it came to the things of God. You didn't even care about them. But now you are sober. Now you're in control. I don't know how many of you have ever been drunk or high. We won't ask anyone to raise their hand. But you, but, but you know, if you've ever been in that, that situation, what happens is you lose your inhibitions. In other words, you do things that, and, or say things that you normally wouldn't do or say. Because you'd be too embarrassed or too scared or whatever or have too much dignity to do. <laughs> and, and so Paul says, no, 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 no. Now, because of the good news of the gospel, because of the work of Christ in you, you have now been become self-controlled. Now you are giving your mind and your body not to worldly passions, but to Christ. Not to intoxicating substances, but to Jesus. Not to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, (laughs) but to Jesus. Not to idolatry, let's get it out there, but to Jesus. You, you have, you are giving yourself to Him. You are now alert to the, to the work of God in your life. You are alert to who God is in your life and you are surrendering your body and your mind to him. You are no longer mastered by your desires and passions, but are being enabled to bring them under control. You don't have to just do it. Not anymore. 
Romans 6 is a wonderful passage. I give that to you to look, read it for yourself. But in that passage, Paul talks about the fact that you are not able to take the instruments of your body and give them to God that they might become instruments of righteousness. You have that ability. Doesn't, again, like I said, doesn't mean you won't struggle or fall. But now, because of the grace of God in your life, you actually have a choice. Without grace, without Jesus, they're really, you're just, it's hit or miss. But in Jesus, you have a choice. And, 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 and not just self-control, but he says we are to be upright. Upright speaks of doing right to others. This person does justice. That word already talks about justice. This person does justice and not just talks about it. It's one of the great sticking points of the civil rights movement within, within the church itself. In Dr. King's monumental letter from the Birmingham jail, he rightly denounced the white clergy for merely talking about justice but not doing it. That is not, listen, justice that is not done is not justice. Justice involves us treating people with dignity and respect and honesty no matter their race or their class, or their religion. They may be wrong, but we treat them with dignity and respect because they bear the image of God. We no longer use people for our own pleasure and profit because we look at the the homeless man on the street is created in the image of God. Flawed, just like you. But still the image, the Imago Dei is there. And so even he, yes, he is worthy of dignity and respect. And as the people of God, we seek to do justice. Not just talk it, but engage people. No matter if we disagree or agree with them, we still show them justice. We still treat them with fairness and kindness, and we promote it. Right now, we're dealing with this in a very prominent way as as our president is seeking to protect our nation. He really is trying to do that, I believe. But we have to question a little bit. It may be possibly with this new executive order, a lot of people who are our folk are being hung up trying to get back into their country. Now, we have to, immigrants to our country, should the Christian church not be the place where they find justice? And grace. Should it be a place where they can find hope and help? Should we not be the people standing up and saying what is just and right. Keeping of the law is important, yes. But we don't want to end up like, the, like World War II and rounding up the Japanese and putting them in our own country in internment camps. We don't want to go back there. We don't want to, be, we don't want to fall into McCarthyism. Remember that? Where communism was the great enemy and Dr. King was accused of being a communist. 
You see, we have to be careful. There's a balance here. And the church of God, we are to be people who are upright, the people who are looking. How can we best show God's justice to those around us because of the grace of God in our lives? Godly speaks of being devoted to God through Jesus Christ. It is one of the key themes in all of Paul's pastoral letters. First Timothy, second Timothy, Titus, their pastoral letters. Devoted to God. Remember I said these, vir- these virtues overlap. The person who is growing in godliness through the training of grace will be a person who is self-controlled and upright. Godliness binds them all together. Godliness, according to Jerry Bridges in his wonderful book, I think it's called The Pursuit of Godliness. I know, it's a, I know he has another one, too, on holiness, but this is called The Pursuit of Godliness. He, he, he says godliness has three components, the love of God, desire for God, and the fear of God. He makes a triangle, actually, and, and, and he talks about the fact that, first of all, the godly person is, is amazed at the love of God for him or her. The godly person is amazed that Christ would die for her, that Jesus would sacrifice his life out of love for God so loved the world, but also so loved me. The God, so that person, first of all, is overwhelmed by the love of God for him or her. And then that, but that leads to something. That leads to then the fear of God, which is a biblical concept that some people have just forgotten because we think love cancels out that. It does not. The fear of God goes from Genesis to Revelation, mentioned all throughout the Bible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is what leads us to obey him. Well, the fear of God means we stand in all of his majesty and greatness and love. We recognize that the one who has loved us and died for us is holy. He is holy Holy, holy. The only attribute of God that's repeated like that in, in both testaments, in Revelation and in Isaiah. When, I mean, sorry, when Isaiah sees the Lord, he says, oh, woe is me, I'm undone. When he sees the angels calling an antiphonal response back and forth, holy, holy, holy. Then the other side says, the whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah's like, ah, I'm undone. I'm an, I'm an unholy man in the presence of the holy. That's the fear of the Lord. But then grace comes, and Isaiah stood up, you know. Grace says God loves you. But God is, and he is, and therefore he is father. You've been adopted into his family. You're, he's father. But then the fear of the Lord says, but he's holy father. And I don't trifle with him. I don't abuse his grace. I don't, I don't, I don't take advantage. You see, because I recognize how great and awesome he is. And that produces in us not a running away from God, but desire for God. The love of God and the fear of the Lord combine to produce in us a desire for God. We, we don't, we want Him. We want Him to be our greatest treasure. And so we come to Him in prayer and the Word and the sacraments. We come to gather in worship. Why do you gather here? Why are you here? I hope you came to be near the Lord. 
I hope you came out of desire for his grace. I need more grace. I need him. I need Christ. I hope you are drawn here. But when you came here, you recognize that God is holy and glorious and loving and good. God is love. Ah, but he's also holy, holy, holy. And so therefore, all of this combines in our hearts, believe it or not, to produce in us a desire for him, a want of him. When Jesus when Peter saw that how holy Jesus was, remember, cast go out and catch some more. Go back out and fish some more. Peter said, hey, we didn't catch anything, Lord. We didn't, we're done. He says, go on back out there. He goes back out. Fish everywhere. Oh, my goodness. Fish, fish, fish. He comes back. What does he do? Lord, sign this contract, and we can get in the business, man. We can make some money. <laughs> no. <laughs> he comes back and says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And then what did Jesus do? Come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Do you see it? Do you see it? He was struck by the holiness of God in Christ, but then Jesus says, come follow. Grace says, come follow me. And what does he do? Run away? No, he says, I want to be with you. See, holiness doesn't push us away because we see the love of God for us. It pulls us in. And so godliness encapsulates these things. James K.A. Smith says it so succinctly, we are what we love. Grace trains us by giving us something greater to love for life. Grace transforms our hearts. And by the way, the heart means the mind, the will, the emotions, the ambitions. All of that's in what the Bible means by heart. It transforms us because now we have a new love. I don't want the same old love. I, I love Anita Baker, God bless her. But and I love that song, same old love. But 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 but, but I need a new love. I need a new love. Some, I've been loving me and my ways all my life, but grace has come, and now I love Jesus, and I want Jesus. All that has to do with Jesus, being upright, godly. Whatever that means, I want Jesus. And because of that, Jesus, because of what he's done, giving me, us, that new heart, we now want to live lives that reflect that grace. And Paul says in this present age, we want to do it now. In glory, when Christ comes again in the new heavens and new earth, we will all be transformed and we will be perfectly upright perfectly godly all that will be perfected amen looking forward to that can't wait but paul says right now not in the age to come but in this present age we need the people of god in this country to display now a self-controlled upright and godly life because that that demonstrates the reality of the grace of god in christ Grace that we say grace has appeared. Well, if, it ha- if grace has appeared, then something should be different about us. And our nation right now is ungracious. Not in the biblical, not just in the biblical sense, just ungracious. And we need the church of God. Oh, we've got to be the people of Jesus. 
We've got to say no to unworldly passions and, and political parties and, and cronyism. And, and we got to, listen, that stuff ain't going to save nobody. Your political affiliation won't even change this country. Let alone save someone. It's the grace of God that will change people. Change electorates. <laughs> change communities. Change cities. We've seen it happen. It's called revival. The Great Awakenings, revival has swept through around the world. Revivals are taking place where the God is pouring out his grace by his spirit upon his church and is changing people. Oh, brothers and sisters, family, we need this and we need it now. Because it is, that's why Paul ends this with these words. To purify from himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, instruments of grace, zealous for good works. You see, see, you see, when grace, when you really understand grace, you want to serve others. If you don't want to serve anybody, you don't understand grace. I hope you've experienced it, but that may be iffy. Listen, grace, Jesus came among, he said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what grace does. It forms the image of Christ so that now we in humility want to do good works of service to others around us. We give ourselves. And it's not about the, and the consequences, leave them in the hands of God. Our job, our calling is to be zealous. I mean, passionate about doing good for one another, the household of faith but also for those outside of the household of faith. Let us do good to all men, Paul says in Galatians 6. Let us do good to all men, especially to the household of faith. But notice that, do good to all. So family, I ask you, how can God use you? Wherever you are, your sphere of influence, how can the grace of God be revealed in you to those around you? Work, school, home, neighborhood, recreation, it don't matter. Wherever you are, Christ is Lord. How can that grace that you say and I say has appeared and transformed us and is, and is continually transforming us? How can that grace be revealed in us? For some of us, that will mean taking a stand against injustice in your area of influence. And that will make you unpopular. But is he worth it? Grace humbles us and causes us to see the poor in our city and not just walk away. It causes us to want to be God's instruments of mercy. How can we help? Truly help. What can we do? Grace looks at the systems that hold people back and enslaves them and says, hold it. Not on my watch. I'm turning away from that. I'm not going to be a part of that. But then, Lord, how can I be a part of helping? Grace refuses to allow me to look at a white person and only see someone who I believe is an oppressor. But helps me look at white people and say, there goes a person created in the image of God, 
worthy of dignity and respect, how can I love them? It causes me to look at my brothers and sisters Christians who are white and say, I don't, in, in Southern, I'm from first Philly, baby. We have a low opinion of white folk in the South. I'm telling you, I'm be honest with you. But grace refuses me to say that to my brothers and sisters that when I come and I hug them and say, you're my family. We're family. You're stuck with me and I'm stuck with you. So let's just love each other. Come on. It refuses for me to judge like that. Grace also works on the other side. Refuses to help for white Christians to believe what they see on TV and say all African Americans in particular are like that. Don't get your information from the TV. Get to know people. Find out that that's your brother. Grace says racism and elitism and all those other isms. I cannot stand. I cannot be a part of that. Grace says I am the chief of sinners, like Paul said. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm in need of the mercy of God. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Grace says the old me is dead. Come on, remember that. Remember this, the old self, Paul says, have been put, you're dead. That old you is dead. When you came to Christ, he killed off the old you. Poof, you're dead. You can't go back. If you tried, you wouldn't like it. It wouldn't fit well. The old you don't fit you anymore. You can go home. If you want to do one of those mirror things and talk to yourself in the mirror, go home and tell, look in the mirror and say, the old you is dead because God killed him. And now I'm a new man in Christ. I'm a new woman in Jesus. Go home and tell yourself that. So now that the old me is dead, I can now, I'm free. I'm free of that old Kevin. I'm, and he, boy, he needs to die too. I'm free of him. Oh, I can walk in newness of life in Jesus. Yeah, oh, the old, because I have the flesh, because I'm still in the flesh, the fallen human nature, Paul calls the flesh. The flesh still wars against the spirit. Galatians 5, right? We know this, right? So I'm still strong. I'm still in the body. But listen, the old self is dead. So I'm having a struggle, but it's not, the, it's not like it's the old me trying to. No, no. I'm, I'm dealing with my natural fallen humanity. And I have a, now I can call upon the resources of heaven. Lord, I need reinforcements. Pornography is coming to get me. Lord, I need help to deal with this. Lord, look, 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 I'm tempted to lie. I'm tempted to, 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 to inflate my, my resume and make myself better than I think I am. I'm, you know what I'm saying? I'm tempted to put on false images because I want you all to love me. That's the old me. Let that stuff die. Let it go. Because grace, grace, God's grace, grace is greater than sin. Grace is greater than sin. Grace is greater than sin. Where sin did abound, Paul said, grace did much more abound. You're free. Now live as free people. Live as free people in Jesus. Be the light of the world, the salt of this earth. Oh, our nation needs you. That nation needs you. For the glory of Jesus. Amen.